Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. podcast. You know, today we're coming off uh, another primary election night at primaries around the, you know, primaries, some referenda, some uh, some recall elections around the country. So we're going to we're going to dig into that. And we continue to be in this kind of unfolding era of crisis and unsettlement is how I would put it. You know, just before we went on the air, uh, news broke that there was a guy who, we don't know all the details yet, but had made threats against the life of Justice Kavanaugh and then was arrested near his home with a gun, right? So that's obviously going to be a big, big issue. I mean, this is, you know, there's every public official gets death threats of some sort right? Someone like tweets at you, oh, you should die, blah, 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 blah. It's different when it's a specific one and the guy shows up near your house with a gun. So that's going to be a big thing. Uh, we're also coming off, uh, and and as much as Democrats and people who believe in civic democracy will very rightly point out that this is sort of the exception that proves the rule in terms of the intrusion of violence or threatened violence into the civic system, it's not nothing. That's a real thing. We'll see, we'll see the details, but we can't let that happen. And, uh, you know, we're coming off these two mass shootings, in which case, you know, we're reminded by our, our, our Republican friends that, that, that child massacres are, are the price of being free, apparently. You also have the, you know, the unfolding politics of continuing unfolding politics of abortion, which we're going to get into because I, I wrote a, a, an op-ed in, in the Times that came out on Monday, sort of, sort of making an argument that I've made uh, on the website that if Democrats want to make the midterm a referendum on Roe v. Wade and abortion rights, because presumably sometime over the next four to six weeks, uh, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. If they want to do that, it's not just enough to kind of let it happen organically. They've got to really put it on the ballot. And I think you do that by making a specific commitment that uh, if they retain their majorities and, and expand their Senate majority by two seats, they will pass a law to make Roe the law of the land in January 2023. You have to make it that clear, especially 
with everything that has happened over the last year and a half, where as much as in on this podcast and in other in other contexts, people have made clear that, you know, having nominal majorities, having nominal control of of Washington doesn't mean you can actually do stuff. And yet, you know that if you know the particulars. And yet for most of the country that does not live and breathe politics and and you know sweat the minutiae, you see this situation where, wow, Democratic president, Democrats control the House, Democrats control the Senate, and yet they're not doing what they say they want to do. What's that about? Needless to say, that, that uh, spawns a lot of mistrust and disillusionment and, and political enervation. So to, to get out of under that, you need to make things very specific. You say, if we get these two additional seats, we will do this specific thing. If you help us win, we will do these things. And let's be clear about what winning means. 50 seats when you have two senators who refuse to do anything is not going to cut it. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a bummer. It's terrible. But we know that. Kirsten Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin are not going to, are, you know, let's not even get into they're not going to change the filibuster. They are not focused on really doing anything. So you need two new people. You got to put that, you need to put that on the table. And, you know, the other thing, just more generally, and I, I was thinking of, you know, we've got the, we've got the January 6th committee hearings coming up. And, you know, we're, we're in this we're in a kind of a general, what I perceive at least, as a, a, a climate of uncertainty and foreboding. There's a lot that people who, the kind of people who I think listen to this podcast, a lot that we've seen over the last year that has the feeling of like a car wreck in slow motion. You sort of see it unfolding. You know what's happening. And it's in a kind of a surreal slow motion that no one can seem to do anything about it. You see it happening, right? That, that, that kind of feeling and a sense of uh, a real sense of foreboding about what comes next. What comes next in the midterm? What comes next as we, as we, as we move forward in the, in the democratic process of the American Republic that, you know, most of us have, have, have gotten used to that being a, the normal state of American life. We may win elections, we may lose elections, but it, is, it is, the, is the default and the sort of the permanent state of political life in the United States. Well, for a lot of us, it's not 100% clear whether it's any longer the permanent state of American politics. So again, that creates this 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 kind of climate of foreboding that 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 hangs over everything. Now, uh, as I said, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, we're going to talk about my op-ed. We're going to talk about a piece of Kate's uh, that will that we're going to I'm going to uh, uh, tell you about in a moment. But the other thing, you know, we had all these primaries last night, and uh, one thing that happened was that the progressive DA out in San Francisco uh, was recalled by a pretty substantial, uh, I think about 60%. 
So he's recall. It was not close. He was, he was, uh, his name is Chessa, is it Bowden? How's it pronounced? Kate? Do you know? Bowden, I, you know, we, we're that's not how I've been saying it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Uh, he, he has a whole other thing. He has a kind of an interesting, um, uh, personal lineage <laughs> himself. Uh, but in any case, that is, it, you know, there's every race has its own dynamics its own particular things. You know, a, a little while back, uh, a bunch of members of the, of the school board in San Francisco were recalled. Um, and that was seen like, oh, this is about the schools, whatever. But the real story there was, is that those characters just weren't really focused on the schools. I can't tell you how many liberals and progressives I know who were supporting the recalls. Just like, this isn't a, this isn't a matter of like, you know, uh, not being in favor of equity or masks in schools these two, these this group just totally lost the plot and were not focused on you know it sounds like kind of clap you know uh, boilerplate but weren't focused on educating the kids they got distracted now this case uh th- this is obviously going to be seen as a big deal nationwide and as a sort of statement or kind of referendum on law enforcement reformism in general, moving away from mass incarceration, you know, paying for bail, all the, all the kind of a constellation of issues about reforming police, blah, 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 blah. Now, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. Well, you know, one thing, I, one thing I want to sort of add to this, and it is, I think this is certainly the case, whatever the specifics of this particular referendum and this particular DA Progressives are, paradoxically, the group for whom keeping crime rates low is most important. No one wants high crime rates. I mean, I guess if you're a bank robber, you might, you might want high crime rates. But, you know, most of us who are not regularly committing crimes do not want high crime rates. But high crime rates always help conservative political movements. It follows as clearly as night follows day. And regardless of the rights and wrongs of criminal justice reform, I guarantee you support for it will fall apart if and when crime grows up. That is just a fact. And it is also a fact that if we live in a high crime era, it will be a conservative political era. Again, I guarantee it. It is not even, it's not even up for debate. And so there's one, there's one political narrative here, which is uh, everybody started talking about mass incarceration and, uh, you know, not having people uh, rotting in jail because they can't, they can't make bail um, and not, you know, not prosecuting uh, you know, kind of minor offenses that pull people into the criminal justice system and ruin their lives and all these kind of things. And well, now we've seen the result. Now crime is up and like, see, that's why blah, blah, blah. blah. You know, it, it is a very neat, straightforward political narrative. What complicates it is that we had this thing called the COVID epidemic and that interwove with the uh, protests surrounding George, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd. And those, I see those things as th- those are part of the same thing. 
it is no accident that that um, explosion, both of protest and reformism, came after everybody had been cooped up in their homes for three months and hadn't been able to go to the grocery store. You know, maybe you go to the grocery store, but hadn't been able to go to restaurants and all this kind of stuff. There's no question that the current rise in violent crime, particularly gun crime, is in large part triggered by the social tumult created by the pandemic. Now, maybe its impact would not have been as great if we still had the, you know, 90s era law enforcement model. But it does create this situation where it is it is it is not clear which of these are the main driver. But I pretty much guarantee you that reformists will get will tend to get voted out of office as long as we remain in a in a period of social tumult and higher than you know higher levels of crime. That's just a reality. And so we'll talk about that. But before we get to before we get to uh, the end of my lengthy monologue, I, I want to tell you that Kate has a piece out today, and today is Wednesday. We're, we we record this a little afternoon, and she has got a long look at a topic that she has discussed. I think in the last couple episodes, but especially the last episode, which is basically you know we're all looking at the the, the what seems like the reality that you know we we've got this society completely awash in guns and child massacres and you know the 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 white supremacists get in on the act and they do their race massacres and all these kind of things um and it certainly feels like everybody kind of agrees nothing can be done and nothing will ever change and it's horrible and you know what's on the menu for lunch right kind of everything's terrible and yet kate is pointing us back to the evolution of the societal outlook towards and the prevalence of cigarettes as a sort of an analog to guns and as we all know um certainly for men the great majority of men in the 1950s and 60s smoked and a rising percentage of women. And over a period of several decades, through some limited government interactions, changing social perceptions, then lawsuits, then all these different kinds of things, smoking rates went down a lot. And it was driven by both the fact that it became increasingly clear that smoking is a good way to get lung cancer and to, you know, make heart attacks and strokes more. It's very bad for you. And just as important, it's not cool. Smoking is still cool to a lot of people, maybe because of when I was raised. Even I still see it in some contexts as cool. Not that I think that, but like you just see, you know, see someone like, Smoking, it just kind of, you know, it's just programmed into us at some level. But clearly at the societal level, it ceased to be clearly cool. Like, is it cool? Because you're, I don't, you're smoking in my face and I don't like that. And like, you're smoking and like, what do I think of you? You're smoking, but we know that smoke, smoking kills people. So why are you smoking? Do you have no self-discipline? You know, it's just, it changed the perception. So Kate has a big piece looking at, is this a model? Is this how maybe our society changes the way it looks at guns, not through, you know, one law that gets passed on 51 votes, but through an evolution that, you know, that would 
that as it did with smoking would take a lot of time. So all those things we are going to talk about. Uh, yes, you're welcome for my lengthy discussion of everything under the sun. But before we get to uh, a few other things under the sun, want to want to remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Yes. If you can't handle the heat, get back to the kitchen because with a glass of Grady's New Orleans style cold brew in your hand, you'll be ready to tackle whatever sweaty situations pop up this summer. If your previous attempts at cold brewing were messy, bitter, bland, don't worry. Grady's makes cold brewing consistent, easy, and mess-free. Their bean bag cold brew kit provides everything you need to make the perfect cup of iced coffee at home. There's no need to buy any special coffee gadgets. You can brew right inside Grady's store and pour pouch and enjoy tasty iced coffee all summer long. Summer-proof your fridge today at Grady'sColdBrew.com and use promo code TPM to save 25% off. You know, it's it's funny. We had a few years ago, we, we had Grady... There's actually Grady. That's not like, you know, this isn't some, you know, they hired McKinsey to create the Grady character to be the sort of the mascot for Grady's cold brew uh, ice coffee. I think his name is, his given name is actually Grayson, but Grady's like his name for short. And he was saying how, you know, Grady's actually, other companies do it now too, but, you know, pioneered this, the kind of concept of you've got this pouch and you just put, you know, you put water in and it's all done. And, and, uh, you know, there's innovation for you for, from uh, Grady's cold brew iced coffee. So with all that, uh, Kate, let's get started. Tell us about, tell us about your piece and tell us about what you learned when you were reporting this. Yeah, this was such a cool piece to do because I think it was an experience that is unique to journalists that this is something I'd been thinking about in kind of a casual way for a while. And I really wanted to read about it. And there just weren't really many pieces. So I got to just write the piece, you know, that's, that's just a a little journalism appreciation corner there. But what I expected people to say was like, we are so much more polarized than we were now, than we were even then when it was cigarettes that, things are different. It's more impossible. All that kind of thing. It's definitely, I think, a mixed mixed answer to the question, can you replicate the cigarette playbook with the fight against guns? Because in some ways, there are really important lessons to take, which is anti-smoking activists ran into a complete brick wall on the federal level. Congress was completely in the pocket of either big tobacco or the tobacco farmers. And after this blockbuster Surgeon General report came out in 1964, underscoring the linkage between smoking and lung cancer and all these other diseases, they passed this really small bore legislation. They passed a law that required the Surgeon General's warning to be on cigarette packets, which the tobacco industry was actually okay with because it framed it as a, sm- a smoker consenting, an informed choice that the smoker was making. Oh, interesting. So even from the beginning, they were, they were okay with it? I thought they had to fight to get that, to get that. I mean, not that I knew much about it. I assumed that they had to fight to get that on. Yeah, well, not up against much resistance. Interesting. Because interesting. it had, you know, by that point it was starting... And the tobacco companies were still trying to obscure the health realities. That's true throughout. But as soon as you had this big report, it became a lot harder to just be like, no, 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 no. It's good for you. Doctors love it. You know, so they had to like change tact a little bit and Mm -hmm. make it more of a consent thing. So you had that and then you had no cigarette advertising on broadcast television, which tobacco companies just kind of shunted that money into other forms of advertising. And that was it for like 30 years. That is basically all that they did. And so activists 
stymied, went to local governments and started going to city council meetings and had great success on that level, especially through, like you mentioned in the opening monologue, changing the narrative. Instead of it being about smokers' rights and smokers consenting to these health risks, they were really successful at shifting the narrative to rights around smokers to not breathe in cigarette smoke. And that argument, you know, it took a while to catch on, especially because there wasn't really a robust body of scientific evidence of the effects of secondhand smoke until the 80s. So for a while, it was just people were being like, yeah, it's probably not good, but we can't really prove it, you know. So that growing scientific consensus helped this mission of saying, you know, smokers do not just get to hurt people around them with impunity. And a big point of success, this was growing into the 90s, which was kind of the beginning of the end, was getting these workplace smoking bans. And they did that in part by appealing to companies' bottom lines, you know, saying that smokers take a ton of breaks, smoke, uh, you know, can damage equipment and just make everything age faster. And smokers get very seriously sick at younger ages and more frequently than non-smokers. So that helped. And also there was the idea that a lot of the debate over smoking in public places, the tobacco companies kind of pushed back with the, well, non-smokers can choose to go someplace else, to go someplace that has a non-smoking section, you know, right. making it about choice like that. And when you're in the workplace, that argument doesn't fly so much because workers have to be there. You know, they can't just go to a non-smoking office. And it's easier for companies to ban smoking outright than to say, here's our smoking cafeteria and our non-smoking cafeteria. So all of that kind of really had the effect of changing the culture around cigarettes much faster than they were able to change, certainly at a federal level, any kind of regulation. So I think that piece of it is a really helpful lesson because a lot of it has echoes with guns. You know, this idea that you have to shift the narrative from the right of the cigarette smoker or the gun user to people around those people who don't want to be hurt or killed buy those right, products. Right. Um, now, of course, you then run into the problem, which is that the gun industry is living in a world where they saw what happened to the tobacco industry and they learned from it. And the biggest thing that they've done to stack their hand here is pass these preemption laws in 42 states have them to varying degrees that stop local governments from regulating firearms and ammunition. And, you know, the range is wide. But in the worst places, like Kentucky, local officials are criminally liable if they don't follow the preemption statutes and try to, in some way, regulate the purchase of you know, <laughs> so, guns and ammunition. So they could actually be like sent to jail? Yeah. For trying to in pass Arizona, a law? In Arizona, they can be kicked out of office. Yeah. So, and that was done by this, um, these kind of coalitions of like conservative state lawmakers, plus private industry actors who are obviously very invested in not being regulated. Right. And it is, you know, it, it falls in this vein, we see a lot of conservative action on the local level, which is that it's usually quiet and boring and has a name like a preemption statute. And right then the actionable effect is they're completely choking off the successful path that anti-tobacco activists took by, you know, you can't do anything at the local government. We already know that Congress is, at least a majority of Congress right now is bought off by the gun industry, just like they were with tobacco. And on the state level, 
I mean, what are you going to do if you're an anti-gun activist? Try to convince some state-level Republican in an uber-gerrymandered seat to sever his ties with the NRA? I mean, that's so demoralizing for a movement, whereas the anti-smoking activists really did, like, they racked up win after win after win on the local level because those officials were pretty amenable to what their constituents wanted. Right. And then the other big difference, though, is... The tobacco industry, even their biggest companies, were not like fans of being smokers. It's been true since even the smokiest times of American history in the 50s and 60s that most people who smoked didn't want to smoke. Most people had started while they were young and at least half in any given year had tried to quit. And a lot of them had a lot of resentment towards cigarette companies for kind of reeling them in and and getting them stuck on this habit. Right. So whereas guns obviously have a very fervent fan base, Big Tobacco never did. So it was a lot easier to have non-smokers and smokers be sort of unified because smokers were like okay with the idea that they couldn't smoke everywhere and were trying to quit anyway. So, you know, that did soften the ground in a way that I don't think, you know, which is not directly transferable with guns, even though we have seen that some gun owners are, you know, more reasonable about restrictions. It's interesting because, you know, as you suggest, it cuts both ways. On the one hand, even in in the, you know, in the sort of the bad old days of mass smoking, as you say, a lot of people did not want to smoke. You know, it's it's at at a minimum, it's expensive, right? It's an expensive habit. And, you know, all the the health, blah, blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. On the other hand, the, the very basis of of their in some cases anger at the at the tobacco industry they were hooked i mean you know people are not very few or you know no americans maybe there's some edge cases if you want to think about it in an expansive way no one is addicted to that to their to their arsenal at home they're not going to they're not you know going to have you know gold cold turkey and all that you know all that kind of stuff so it does cut both ways and i certainly remember i mean there was a whole the whole smokers rights thing and it's interesting that what we're really where the basic question really is similar goes back to when you mentioned about, you know, in the workplace, it has become a, a sort of a cliche of the workplace in the last 20 years that you've got some people who keep having to go outside to smoke a cigarette. Right. There's even the thing, the kind of the group of people that keep meeting outside because basically, look, they need a hit of their drug. They need it. They need it. And that at, at a basic level, that's just a pain in the ass. I mean, right. If you if you need to do that, that makes it much less. It's it's a lot harder to do than just sitting at your desk smoking a cigarette if you have to go out like that. And it also kind of like addiction is not pretty. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Not just in the sense that smoking is in some ways not pretty, you know, kind of people have different aesthetics, but addiction isn't pretty. And if you are going, you know, keep having to go out of the office, go down to the sidewalk and and getting in a quick cigarette because you're addicted, you're, that's, that's, there's all sorts of bad mojo there that everybody kind of, you know, that everybody realizes you're not in control of yourself because we all know it is not fun to do what you're doing. So it puts everything in, in kind of a, a negative light. But beyond that, and I think this is the key issue, when you mentioned that the smoking companies say, hey, if you don't smoke, you can go somewhere else. You can do this. It's all everybody's choice. The question is, who is it on? Mm-hmm. Is it on me, the non-smoker? 
that I have to go somewhere else? Or is it you, the smoker, who decided to smoke and also does smoke and caused the problem? And I think one of the things you see that is at the heart of the gun discussion is that the pro-gun America sees it as, well, if you don't like guns or don't want to be murdered, maybe you can get a better door. Or maybe you need a gun. Because if everybody's got a gun and you don't, yeah, you are at a disadvantage. Or, you know, I'm one of the 99% of people who doesn't commit child mass, you know, child massacres. So why do I have to be punished for the bad 1% of child, child murderers? And in all of these, it's kind of like, hey, I need my guns. And if you, it's not my problem. And the whole thing is kind of like, well, okay, fine. You don't do a child massacre, but your, your hobby makes them possible. So it is kind of on you. Like, and, and I think we discussed this in an earlier episode of the podcast. Like, okay, I'm sure it's fun. I'm sure the AR-15 is awesome. And it's funny. I've even, in talking to readers over the last few weeks, talked to a lot of people who were having a whole conversation. It's clear that we basically agree on, on the gun issue. And then it'll come up like, oh, I have an AR-15. Okay. <laughs> great, right? I mean, and, and that is great because it shows you these people like to have it. It's awesome. I go to the range. I shoot it. A lot of them are ex-military. You know, you get used to shooting these things. You want to do it. But, but it really comes down to who's it on? And I think the centerpiece of gun politics has to be, look, you're not going to change the fact that a lot of people like shooting guns or a lot of people feel feel safer in various ways if they've got a gun in the house. But kind of like it's on you to, you come up with a way that you can have your hobby, but not everybody is getting shot constantly. It's on you. And, and that is really the kind of, who is it on? And that, right. as you say, that changed in the smoking debate. Well, and I think a commonality between cigarettes and guns that plays in here is that in both cases, the special interest industry backing was understandably from their perspective, much more extreme on the issue than the bulk of their, you know, customers or constituents. And that's true with guns too. It's this, it's the way that, you know, public polling shows that majorities of people do favor kind of reasonable gun restrictions, even gun owners. And it's just this very, very, very vocal minority who thinks there should be unfettered access to guns at all times. And even though we said, as we said, you know, the, the constituency between cigarettes and guns is different. It was a big part of the cigarette debate that was kind of surfacing that that silent majority and showing people that you're not the only one who's bothered and irritated by cigarette smoke. It's a pretty common thing. It really is the tobacco industry that's positing that, you know, no, people should be able to smoke wherever. Like even smokers didn't really feel like that. You know, they understood people's beef with smoking on airplanes and stuff. And the same is true with guns. And so, you know, when I was talking to people in the more like activisty vein here, um, you know, I, they were telling me that that is a big they see as a big stepping stone in the movement is like bringing gun owners together with people who are anti-gun and kind of having, instead of it being gun owners versus non-gun owners, having it be the majority who is in favor of making, treating these like lethal weapons, you know, with respect and making them difficult to get and difficult or more difficult to get, more difficult to use. And then the other 
minority that is like echoing kind of the direct line from the gun lobby, which is every single person should have a gun since they come out of the womb kind of thing and reframing it that way. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's funny. I even, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times that you find cigarette smoke very distasteful. You don't like it. And that is certainly a a very common thing. I'm, I mean, obviously, people have different, you know, people's noses work differently. Everybody has their different tastes. But I'm curious that I don't have that as much, I think partly because I was, I grew up in a period where, where more people smoked and that was just people smoke. Like, I, you know, you don't, so I think, I think, uh, and, and partly now I am, except when I'm at a party sometimes where they're smoking, that's a sort of a, even now that's often a smoking context at a, at a party. Even people who aren't regular smokers will smoke and blah, 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 blah. Um, but I'm not around smoking a lot. So I don't even, I don't even, I can't even say when the last time as I was around people smoking that I would even know. But I think part of it, part of that change was also that people didn't even completely know, non-smokers didn't even completely know they didn't like being around smoking because it was so pervasive and it was, um, it was just how it was, right? And, and, and I think if things, we all have a tendency that you don't want to not like how things are. Because you're going to be really frustrated, right? <laughs> if 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 you have a real problem with with things, just how things are, and things are not going to change. So you know, there's all these different dimensions of the of the evolution of you know just just how society views views a practice like that that is that is that pervasive. Yeah, I mean, I just think really my biggest takeaways from this is like the power of changing the narrative is enormous. And here, you know, kind of even overshadowed the power of even the local regulations. I mean, the real winning, the real victory of the anti-smoking contingent was that they reframed smoking to be some a gross, unhealthy nuisance. And that was massive. That changed how the whole country felt about it. And that took a lot of decades. But, you know, we are in some ways kind of facing a similar thing where I think a lot of the efforts to reframe guns away from this kind of like cool action figure thing to, you know, the thing that's ripping children's bodies apart. I think that is that tussle over that narrative ground is very intense and will be very determinative of of what happens next. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that just speaking for myself, it is not that I am so gung-ho on a ban on assault weapons or more background checks or red flag laws or any of the, you know, any of the various things that are talked about as sort of, you know, kind of first steps or the most, you know, or the things that have most popular support, blah, 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 blah. The key thing to me is, again, that basic sense of these are dangerous weapons. I mean, <laughs> you know, by definition, they're supposed to be dangerous. They're supposed to shoot projectiles really fast and either kill people or kill animals. You know, you may do a kind of a, um, you know, a modulated version of that with target practice, but that's what they're for, right? And I would be, I would be much more open to the argument of, hey, 
guns have have long been more deeply rooted in our national culture than in many other countries. That's a fact. That is that is a fact. Didn't it wasn't always like it is now, but that's a fact. Um, and there is some point in the argument where you say, you know, where's the balance between the fact that people want to be hunters, the people want to be target practice, and the fact that some people will misuse guns? I'm comfortable having that conversation. The hang up for me, the part that is kind of critical, is that clearly, you know, pro gun America is locked into this thing of there are no limits. I can have any gun I want. And uh, I, I, I can have any gun I want. And to the extent that guns are dangerous, we need more guns. And basically, it's not my problem. And, and that's, that's not okay. You know, we, everybody talk, you know, the kind of, um, the standard, the standard, uh, the standard line about, you know, okay, sure. Lots of people die from gunshots. Lots of people die in auto accidents every year. Do you not want to have cars? Well, Okay, well, I mean, some people don't want to have cars, uh, uh, but most people that is not a viable, you know, that's not that's not a viable uh, policy position. But we do all sorts of things. You've got to take a test. You got to you got to you know. It's uh, we know there's lots of bad drivers, but but you know you got to take a test. You've got to go in every few years, especially when you get older, and show that you can still drive. You got to show that you can see, and um, when you you have to carry auto insurance. And if you get in a lot of accidents, your auto insurance uh, premium can become prohibitive. And if you do a lot of reckless driving, you can lose your license to, you know, to, to, uh, to, to, to drive. And we have speed limits. We have all this kind of stuff that recognizes the fact that driving has a lot of inherent dangers. And, and, and we need to have this balance. And to me, the, the, the big thing is just there is not even a recognition that there is any need for any balance. You need to be able to, at any age or any age over the age of 18, to go in and purchase, in most cases, immediate access to any firearm and immediate access to any kind of, uh, you know, of any kind of um, ammunition. And, you know, you kind of think of the hypotheticals, well, wait a second, me and my, you know, I, I, my gun broke and me and my buddies want to go down to the range. And now I got to wait three days. So we can't go to the range. Or like, I needed some ammo, but I couldn't buy the, you know, and yeah, yeah, that'd be a bummer. But like, there's got to be a fucking balance. Mm-hmm. You know, it is <laughs> just the way that like, you know, you got to get your car inspected once a year. There's got to be some limits and some recognition that society has some standing to say, you've got to act with some level of responsibility. And there are some limits and we don't have that. And that to me is the, and, and, and frankly, I think that that is why the pro-gun folk folks are right. They're, they're not they are not confused when they have this absolute no. Because absolute no, that is a that is a good um, you know, that is a good parapet to hide behind. You know, right? Because that's just no. Okay, okay, well, don't know where to can't really get anywhere if it's if it's just no. And so there's there's a reality that once you say, okay, 
we do have to recognize that these are really dangerous and where do we strike the balance, then you're then you're talking about where to strike the balance. And pretty clear, the balance is not in a good place right now. Once you recognize that, uh, you know, that basic, that basic premise. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, your, your piece. So you wrote in the New York Times and then kind of like carried the conversation with readers over to TPM from that. So, you know, how's that process been? How's, what are you getting back from readers? Like what insights are you getting there? Well, you know, people are calling up their people are calling up their senators, their Democratic senators, who are the relevant ones in in this case. And just just in case anybody who you know, for, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, I made this argument that Democrats, both to preserve abortion rights and also to preserve their majorities, need to basically every senator needs to say, hey. If we pick up two more Senate seats, which is probably the number they need, and you find out what the number is, we will, in January 2023, we're going to change the filibuster rules to allow a vote, and then we were going to vote to pass this Roe law. That is what we're going to do. So here is exactly what we need from you. That is what we will do. And what is really key is getting, you know, I think we know in a general sense that most of them would do something like that. But you need it to be super concrete. And so people are calling their senators and uh, a number of senators, their offices are willing to say, yep, we have already agreed to that 100%, you know, name the day we're going to be there to, you know, vote for both things. And what is interesting to me, though, is, or one of the many things that is interesting to me is that a lot of offices are sort of like, yeah, uh, don't really know. Or, uh, yeah, you know, no one is more pro-choice than me, and I, I don't know. I, I don't don't really think we have any position on the filibuster thing. And in a lot of cases, you know, you call, you're going to get a junior person, and maybe the, you know, maybe they don't know the answer, maybe they're not authorized to talk about it. So those are kind of like maybe they have to take down your name, and then a more senior person who's you know who's authorized to respond will send you a letter or something like that. But what it really strikes me is that this thing that is really critical that is the only way you will actually create a federal law is kind of not even being actively discussed. Because I guarantee you, if you call into your senator and say, hey, do you, your Democratic senator and say, hey, do you, do you uh, support abolishing Obamacare? You'll get a really quick, they're not going to have a problem answering that. They know the answer to that. Or if you call in your Democratic senator and say, do you support the right to choose? <laughs> they're they're going to give you a pretty clear answer on that. So it just kind of, it it is really critical. You need everybody to sign up and everybody to be united. But it always it's always very interesting to me that um, this very basic thing is not even not not even on their radar, and that's a problem because and that's that's one of the reasons. And anyway, look, there's lots of reasons why this is looking like a very very challenging election for for the Democrats, and and most of them do not have a lot to do with abortion. But the way you win elections is to is to really clearly show voters the immediate impact of their political participation or the immediate impact of their lack of uh, political participation. And this is this is one of the key ones for right now. So the fact that it's not on the radar is is not promising. Yeah. So in our last few minutes here, let's kind of switch tracks and talk about the primaries yesterday, which was actually the biggest primary night we've had so far volume-wise. But it was kind of low profile in that a lot of the races will be big deals come November, but have less competitive primaries, that kind of thing. 
But the big banner headline that you um, previewed in the at the beginning is that the San Francisco DA was recalled, who is a progressive who kind of gained steam out of the George, the post George Floyd reform movement. And like you say, kind of, you know, wanted to get rid of cash bails and had this whole philosophy of basically imprisoning people as a last resort and then reforms that flow in that direction. Um, And he, yeah, he was recalled handily. And, you know, there's kind of echoes of that in the Democratic race for Los Angeles mayor, which went to a runoff between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. But also that race has been completely kind of hallmarked by crime and who's tougher on crime. And this Caruso guy, who was a longtime Republican, has taken the what you'd consider the more Republican stance, right? I'm going to hire a bunch of new police officers and has raised the possibility of, um, you know, punishing homeless people who don't go to shelters, that kind of stuff. And then Bass has taken a bit of a more, you know, reformist uh, view. But the thing that kind of struck me about these is how we keep having these conversations over and over again, but specifically how it it kind of feels like echoes from the 90s right now when Democrats were very afraid to be, quote, soft on crime. So became very Republican-y, very willing to embrace kind of punitive measures and to really you know, crack down on criminals. And the thing that it just kind of bums me out so profoundly is we had that experience and we saw that most of those punitive measures like didn't really work that well. And what it really did was result in huge mass incarceration, particularly of black people, which has, you know, helped contribute to where we are now, which is that our prisons are being used as like homeless shelters and uh, mental health treatment facilities and healthcare centers without having the resources to really do any of that. Um, but it does feel like that kind of the malaise and the discontent you were talking about at the beginning have contributed to this feeling that society is spiraling out of control, whether or not that's really true. I mean, in San Francisco, for example, violent crime is at an all-time low. That's not the case across the country. Violent crime did rise in 2020 and again in 2021, but we're still you know, we're, we haven't reached like 90s levels. So, I mean, what do you think is going on here? Do you think this is more of like a facts versus feelings kind of thing? You know, it's it. I, I you know, one thing when you say that, that that when we were having this, not not you and I, but, you know, we the general, we were having this yeah. debate a couple of years ago and, you know, especially during the Democratic primaries. And there was this sense what were people thinking when, you know, who, how could, how, how was it possible that so many people uh, voted for the 1990, was it 1994 crime bill? You know, the crime, the, mm-hmm, the crime mm-hmm. bill that was the, the, the big focus of attention. And Joe Biden needs to apologize for that. And how is it that lots of, I think about half of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus voted for it? How was this possible? And I remember saying kind of like, you had to be there. I'm not saying it was the right decision, but you had to be there. There was this very, this overwhelming sense that crime was out of control, threatening, you know, threatening people's basic sense of safety. Nothing anybody had tried had made it go down. And that was true in the sense that um, crime rates, you know, crime rates started going up in the 1960s. They sort of plateaued in the early 80s, went down a tiny bit, and then went up again in the late 80s, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you kind of had to be there. And and that's why it happened. And um, 
and that's not saying it was the right decision, but things happen when people feel threatened by violence. And and the crime wave of the late 20th century, there's a lot of people who argue that it was propaganda or um, it was sort of whipped up to justify a reinstitution of Jim Crow. And there was a lot of propaganda. And there were a lot of forces in society wanting to use it to create punitive legal structures against African-Americans. But the late 20th century crime wave was real. It was very real. It's documented. It was a real thing. Um, and people react to that. And one thing I wanted to see, you know, when you're saying about is it, you know, is this, is it fact or is it, you know, just perceptions? It's worth noting that even though uh, criminal justice reform became possible because of you know, fairly dramatically falling crime rates. And another thing, people, that we don't talk about it a lot anymore, the decline of support for capital punishment was certainly came about in the United States because of uh, uh, falling crime rates. And yet, and yet, even at the lowest points of crime, when, when there were polls said, you think there's more crime, less crime, majorities are still saying, yeah, crime's going up, or there's lots of crime or crimes as, big, as high as it's ever been. People always, always, you know, uh, th- that's just people have these perceptions. And that's so it, it, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I know that um, I know that where I live, uh, statistically, New York City, statistically, crime is up. I know that there have been a lot of high profile shootings. Now with that, it's high profile. Am I just hearing about it more? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I know that there is, and I think this is basically a downstream effect of not only changes in policy, but during the during the beginning of the COVID epidemic, basically the city had to make a change in policy that they could not have people going into homeless shelters because those were just, you know, COVID farms, basically. You can't, you, you just could not put people in congregate settings like that. So homelessness is much more visible now. That's not saying there's more homeless. I, I think there probably is just because of all of the, you know, tumult created by the, by the pandemic, but it's certainly more visible and setting aside the homeless. Well, I was going to say setting aside the homelessness part of it, but you can't because both rising crime rates and the visibility of homelessness makes most people feel like social order is breaking down. And that is a fact. That is a fact. That doesn't mean it's right. That is a fact that that, that is how people perceive things. And with crime, no one wants to be shot in the face, right? No one wants to be mugged. So it's... Uh, it's complicated. What is not complicated, though, is that if there are rising crime rates, you're going to you're not going to have criminal justice reform, and you're going to have a broader, far more conservative politics. Well, and the thing that's so difficult is that this is one of those classic situations where the kind of crime is on the uprise and you are unsafe and we live in a den of violence is so much easier to convey in a soundbite and to 
illustrate then is the kind of arguments for progressive reform, which are often nuanced. And you have to deal with like the unfortunate reality that even reforms that work well, usually take time and resources and don't work 100% of the time, which means that then your kind of bad faith opponents will have easy fodder to say like, well, what about this one guy who, you know, went out and committed more crime or something like that. But I mean, the Fox Newsy inside of this, plus local news are like made for this, are made for showing smash and grabs or something on fire or, you know, honing in on one like particularly gruesome shooting or act of violence. And then all of a sudden you feel like it's everywhere. You know, it's one of those things where anecdotes don't equal data, but anecdotes feel so much more true than data that I think it's really easy to kind of see these jarring images and hear these gruesome stories and just get freaked out. And then you're like, whoever says they're going to protect me from this, that is what I'm going to focus on. Even though, you know, as we know clearly by now, all this stuff is always tied up to other systemic failures and other, you know, areas where our social safety net has completely broken down. And you know, as it's always been the case, it's like if we'd focus there and kind of shored those things up, you would have less gun violence and you would have less you know, drug trade and, and all the rest. But it, it's such a bleak proposition because, you know, what are Democrats going to fix our housing system and get, you know, higher paying jobs for people and raise the minimum wage and do all these other things, you know, strengthen the foster care system, give more resources to parents, all this stuff before the midterms, which then perhaps over time would decrease this kind of stuff. I mean, that that can't happen. So instead, it's so much easier to be like, well, we'll just hire a bunch more police and we'll just like put more people in jail and raise minimum sentences and all the stuff that we've tried before that, you know, doesn't get to the root of the issues. Well, one thing, you know, when I, I follow a few people who, who you know, uh, cover the, the criminal justice reform movement very closely, often, at, you know, often, you know, from a f- supportive standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's true that there are a lot of uh, these reform DAs who've, who've, who keep winning, who get reelected. So it's not, every case is different, right? And so we can't, it, this is kind of a, at some level, a, a bellwether in San Francisco. But, but it's important to note that a lot of these uh, reform DAs are, get, are getting uh, re- reelected. I, what is really unfortunate is that, I mean, look, we should not rule out the possibility that some reforms don't work, that some reforms, uh, you know, increase crime rates. You know, there's a there's a natural defensive tendency to not want to go there, but it's it's foolish to 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 rule that out. It's you know, some aspects of crime respond to, you know, carrots and sticks. Uh, th- that's a reality. And what is very unfortunate and really hard to unwind or, you know, make sense of is that we had this, you know, as we talked about last week, someone took the snow globe and like shook it up the entire society. There's, there's, there's really no question to me that that is the, that is the big driver of this. I mean, not, not least that it's not like it's not like there was a lot more criminal justice reform starting in the middle of 2020, you know, with the pandemic than there had been the year before or year before that or since. That is the big thing. Everything got stirred up and that, that, drives, that, drive, that drives crime. 
Um, and yet, you know, g- good luck making that argument. That's not gonna, that's not going to go anywhere. And even even to the extent that people buy that argument, well, but we had the pandemic, and now we need to get crime to go down. So it is in a political context, it's largely irrelevant because you can't, you kind of can't really know, and you still have to do something about it. Um, and you know, as is, you know, one of the reasons you have everything that we, you know, and I'm, look, there are, when you said before about, you know, people are doing the same thing over again, when they saw all the terrible things that the, you know, war on crime, uh, created, there is certainly a narrative and we shouldn't completely dismiss the narrative, but it's, it's, it is, it is tautological. It's totally obvious to a, to a lot of people like, Okay, well, you know, we had all this crime and then we got totally hard ass and threw everybody in jail and then crime went down. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that was that was what happened. That's why it went down. Now, I I've written a lot about this when when it seemed like the fall of, you know, the decline of crime was 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 basically permanent. Um it's not like there wasn't a lot of get tough on crime stuff in the 70s and 80s. It's not that we weren't executing a lot of people. It's not that it's not that the cops weren't trying hard enough, right? You know, I wrote a few pieces about this, you know, before we got into this place that we're in right now, that we don't really know why crime fell the way that it did. It really kind of came out of the blue, even though, you know, there was Comstat and all, you know, everybody wanted to take credit, but we really don't know. And that was always kind of a problem because then you don't know if it's just going to start again. And and again, it is very important for us to 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 keep highlighting the fact that crime has gone up. It has not gone remotely to the levels it was a generation ago, but it's gone up. And it's and it's that's there's lots of politics that progressives will not like that flows from that fact. Yeah, I mean, this isn't profound, but it just it sucks that you have you get reformers like this guy in San Francisco into office. And then he was elected in 2019. So, I mean, he's he's been given like five minutes to put those reforms into action and to see if they work before he got soft on crime slung around his neck and like every instance of violence in San Francisco pegged to, well, this is what happens when you're soft on these people, you know? And it's just, again, it, I mean, it's not very deep. It's just we... We just so rarely have any kind of extended period where we actually give reform a try before deciding it doesn't work, that we just have such a small body of evidence. <laughs> and it was a bad time for a pandemic. Yeah. It was ill-timed, yeah. you know. I and mean, really that's... <laughs> just stepped all over the energy coming out of the George Floyd stuff. Well, and, and, and it's, it's, this is why history is com- uh, complicated, that yes, it did step on that. And, and at the same time, the... George Floyd was not the first person to be murdered by an out-of-control cop. He wasn't the first person to be videotaped being murdered by an out-of-control cop. The irony and complexity of this history is that that breakthrough was, again, I think certainly tied to the pandemic. Again, you had people who had been you know, not literally locked in their homes, but to a great extent, we had all been shut in our homes for three or four months. And that created a 
a whole, you know, just just a whole lot of weird mojo in society in general, and you know, not weird bad. I mean, it not only people had had enough and they went out and they were protesting, but when you've been locked inside your house again, metaphor, locked inside your house for three or four months, it takes you out of your normal thinking. You don't just say, "Well, you know." you know, Rodney King and, and this person and that it's too bad. It happens all the time and life isn't fair. You start saying, fuck that. This is not okay. And, and, and being shut in my house for four months is, has, you know, made me a little less patient with all the things that suck about life. Mm, Yeah. So both of them, this is, you know, again, there's years from now, there will be fascinating histories of the pandemic because these things both grow out of the, out of the pandemic. Yeah. And, 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 and just a final point, you know, certainly conservatives would say that it was the outgrowth of sort of permissive attitudes towards all the protesting, which in some edge cases did, you know, feed into looting, that that's where all the crime comes, you know, we, we, let, we let things get out of control. And now we have crime, you know, so, so everybody's got their, everybody's got their theory. Mm, yeah. Well, a parade of horribles. Yeah. Yeah, things continue to be terrible. That's that is the takeaway uh, from uh, this episode of the Josh Marshall podcast. Let me let me tell you uh, before we finish up. You know, this is a kind of a bit of a, a bit of a sneak preview. TPM. You know, we have our annual uh, fundraising drive for the TPM Journalism Fund coming up, and that's a really important one this year. You know, this has been a very challenging year for all publishers. Um, so we really need to we really need to knock it out of the park with that one. So we're gonna it's gonna be announced I think next week and. And um, so if you are a, if you're a member, if you're not a member, you know, if you can, if, if you want to support our work, uh, you know, beyond the, uh, the, beyond the cost of uh, a membership, it would, it would really help us out this year. So keep that in mind when you, when you, you know, uh, when you see it discussed on the site, we'll discuss it here also on the podcast, but it's an important one. So please, please keep it in mind. Also keep in mind that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can find it at Grady's Cold brew.com and if you use the promo code tpm you can get 25 percent off all of your all of your wonderful iced coffee and i guess that's uh that's it on that optimistic note <laughs> yeah well thank you listeners for being a, a bright spot amid the bleakness and we'll yes. see you back here next week all right later the josh marshall podcast is hosted by me tpm reporter kate riga and tpm founder editor-in-chief josh marshall the show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. <laughs>